You're tuned in to another month's episode of Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the host of the next hour of programming. This month on Energy Voices, we're going to focus on large-scale renewable energy project development. Uh, We have an anchor interview with Grant Arnold, who's the president and CEO of Blue Earth Renewables, an organization with $1.4 billion in built or actively constructed renewable energy projects across a diverse source of generation types. Grant has a fantastic background in working for a traditional energy company in Suncor who was actively developing renewable energy projects as much as 17 and 18 years ago and is now full-time working on large-scale renewable energy project development. We're also going to have an interview with Ryan Dick, who is the U of A Student Energy Chapter President, who's going to do a bit of an overview for us on uh, what it's like to start and grow a new student energy chapter and why he wants to apply his experience in civil engineering towards the renewable and sustainable energy space. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm very excited to welcome Grant Arnold, who's the president and CEO of Blue Earth Renewable. So welcome to the show, Grant. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'm, I've been looking forward to this interview for some time just because you you and your company occupy such an interesting position in Alberta as one of the largest and leading developers of large-scale renewables projects in the province. And so uh, I think today, more than anything, I just wanted to have you on to share a bit about your story, your experience, and how you got involved in large-scale renewables and, and really where you see this industry going. And and to kick us off, can you give us sort of the 30-second the, the background on, on who you are, where you grew up, where you went to school, uh, and sort of what led you, your first steps into the energy industry? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm actually from uh, rural Alberta, so I, I grew up on a, on a farm outside of Calgary and actually uh, went into engineering school at U of A. And uh, actually, that's probably where it all started in renewables for me, because one of the, the things that I learned in the civil engineering program was about water and got involved in, um, you know, studying about basically what is you know, hydroelectric power and all the different things you need to learn to to get those built and, and, and get them running. So um spent quite a bit of time consulting in Alberta for a couple of firms um, on international projects, including some hydro. But uh, at the time in the 90s, there wasn't a ton of hydro being built in many places. So mm-hmm. spent some some time on some hydro outside of outside of North America and also on older hydro in Canada that was um, undergoing change as, as all uh, some of these assets are, are extremely old and get upgraded and deal with different uh, conditions at the time. And then in in that work, um, managed to to find a role at uh, at Suncor when when Rick George had around 1999 or 2000 uh, wanted to um, you know explore with with some real capital um, alternative and renewable energy, um, and and that initiative led to a team at Suncor that I got to be part of when uh, which evolved into uh, what was uh, Suncor and, and Enbridge's first wind farm in in well first wind farm period but it happened to be in Saskatchewan so it evolved from from water and engineering into into wind actually mm-hmm. and and uh, um, in an energy company mindset mm-hmm. and and what was that experience like for you in in stepping inside a very traditional energy company that had predominantly oil sands assets uh, that was making a big play on renewable and alternative energy what was that sort of experience and, and just maybe describe that for us a little bit I think it was, uh, it was it was very interesting for me and still is to this day uh, because part of the the whole rationale behind it was about you know very a very long term view 
of the world. And uh, we all, I think, then and now can get caught up in what's effectively a spot market or a very immediate uh, things. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we do in renewables is build projects that are and and operate them for a very, very long time. They're long life assets, which if you think about uh, an oil sands company is the same approach. So things go up and down day to day, but in the end you have to be thinking, you know, uh, decades. You have to be thinking in a, in a, in a decade type time frame, and that's what Suncor taught me first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, probably a great gift. And and at the time, wh- what did you see as the motivating factor besides the sort of experiencing a new worldview? Was there strong economics behind the projects? Was it to develop technical expertise? What was sort of the driving motivations behind that experience? I think uh, sp- speaking, you know, generally, um, all energy companies, you know, look at at the economics of the projects, the life of the projects, the right risk balance. So, you know, without um, divulging exact details, I can say we were, you know, held to uh, making an economic return that was fair, and um, you know, also, um, you know, making sure that uh, like companies are doing today, that they understand where markets are changing and what prices might be like, and what other factors are out there. So that that. Um, that hasn't changed, I don't believe. You know, I think many of the traditional companies that are, whether they're in, in traditional um, electricity generation or, or traditional forms of energy, you know, they're, they're, you're seeing groups move into this space where they need to understand where the market might change. Yeah. And, um, you know, there is um, usually, uh, and I would say still today, very much a, a focus on on how to make all aspects of it work from a stakeholder perspective, from a pricing perspective, and a shareholder return perspective. Yeah, and and maybe walk me through then the the jump from uh, working with Suncor into Blue Earth. How did that change come about for in your career? Yeah, I spent about ten years at Suncor, and then um, was lucky enough to get a I guess a phone call from uh, Blue Earth, which was really just starting, and um, that appeal to me in, in, in a number of ways, um, some of them to do with the core business of, of being renewables, but also for me in my career, it was a, it was a chance to go from something that was in the, you know, over 10,000 employees and meant certain career path options for me at Suncor versus, uh, you know, what being at a startup in a private equity space um, with some, some very, very um, uh, impressive shareholders in my mind, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan and, and at the time, ARC Financial. And that was, for me, career-wise, something I got to or wanted to really learn about more than just one piece of the business, but all of the business and uh, governance and a number of other things. And at the same time, I really I, do, I really did truly like the business model from, yeah. a, from a, a sustainability of a business model, a long-term business model, and one that um, has different exposure to different market forces. So I, I was really, mm-hmm. really quite excited about the whole package. And and so for anyone that's maybe not familiar with Blue Earth, uh, can you give us a sense of what are your assets? You talk about the business model of the business. Maybe just give us a quick overview of, of what is Blue Earth Renewables and how is it unique in the grand scheme of renewable energy companies? Blue Earth is a, Blue Earth's an independent power producer. We are, we're based in Calgary. Um, we generate uh, wind power, solar power, and hydropower across Canada. We are looking elsewhere, but but we do have um, operating assets in, in all three of those categories, and we had always created the business to be portfolio-based, both in technology and region, because things change and, and uh, markets change. And like I say, we build long-life assets, and, and the markets actually reflect that. They're, uh, they're you know, they're, they're longer-term changes in market that uh, that take time. So we always wanted to be portfolio-based, and that's what we are. So we, mm-hmm. we have uh, approximately 
$1.4 billion worth of, of projects either operating or under construction right now mm-hmm. in Canada. And and where does that place you guys as far as the sort of size of renewable project developer in comparison to any competitors? The the project specific size, um, you, you see different groups um, doing the same types of projects. Whether it's uh, you know there's some there's some giants we're seeing in the Canadian space coming in interna- from international um, areas, and you know they, many of them are are more than ten times our size, but the projects might look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So. In that in that regard, from the from the driving down the road perspective, um, you know our projects don't look a lot different. Yeah. In terms of, of scale, you know we've we've grown in six years from virtually nothing to to uh, you know, quite a number of, of good uh, projects that'll be operating for for some time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really sort of interested me and in just looking at externally at the Blue Earth story has been the fact that you guys seem to have a lot of grit in inherent in the company and in the ability that uh, you, you sort of mentioned that you can't look at the day-to-day, you need to look over the year-to-year or the decade-to-decade. And But the day-to-day right now on electricity prices in Alberta is not great. We have some historically low uh, power pool prices and, and you've seen over the past few years a lot of uh, folks in the renewables industry sort of just lamenting the fact that power prices are low and woe is us, whereas uh, even some of the work that Blue Earth has done around like the Bull Creek project as far as securing PPAs from, was it 500 schools altogether? 500 school facilities, yeah, 20, 25 school boards, rural yeah. school boards. And so as someone who spent a decent chunk of my career in sales, that sounds like a terrifying yeah. process to try to secure that many uh, schools. And so that was one question, again, however much information you're able to reveal, but I think I'd love to hear more about that story about how you guys were able to convince uh, and network that many different stakeholder groups around a single project. Bull, Bull Creek's been been a great project for for a lot of reasons, but uh, I think you know kudos to what's called the Commodities Purchasing Consortium, which is basically the schools themselves got organized, especially the rural school boards, the ones that that by themselves aren't aren't that large. So a long time ago, long before you know, there's anything like the Bull Creek project there. You know, they were doing contracts to aggregate their purchasing power. So they had a process in the around 2011, 2012, um, where they were looking to select uh, someone to provide um, electricity to 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 the rural school boards collectively, and, and um, collectively they were you know large enough to have a process and attract companies like us and others, and we won that process. So we were selected to be their supplier. And uh, and then it took um, you know the better part of three or four years to get the project off the ground mm-hmm. for all the regulatory and other things we have to do. And uh, and I don't imagine you guys were the only ones bidding on that project. Correct. And so so what is it about your approach uh, and and offering that you think made you guys as successful partners? We um, a lot of it I think I mean they'll have to tell you what their criteria was, yeah. but uh, I think you know they were looking for um, I believe what we. You know, said and is still true. You know, we're a, a local partner to them. We're here, and we intend to be operating that asset for its whole life. So we weren't, um, you know, trying to be uh, a developer. You know, get the thing built and then flip it and, and, and get out. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's one key part of our model is we're going to be there on the ground with our own employees for the long term and in the communities. So I think you know part of that business model was was appealing to them. I think our track record as a management team. And you mentioned earlier in a question, you know, the, or the comment about grit. You know, all of us had been uh, doing this for some time before we created Blue Earth as well. But I, I think that um, you know our reputation as people and, and uh, as a as a management team 
was important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our, our, our model, our proposition to them for, for um, what is a, a pretty good power price, you know, was, was part of it, I expect as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, it's interesting because every project has an aspect of economics and sort of it could be tangible or intangible, other benefits outside of that. Um, I want to talk about the sort of economic side of things right now. Um, do you guys see the current power price situation in Alberta as being a major limiting factor on local development? Sort of how do you guys see the local Alberta market? And then after we can maybe talk about the portfolio of other opportunities. The, yeah, the Alberta market is is very, very interesting. I mean, uh, um, to the degree the, the listeners don't don't know. I mean, it's it's unique to to Canada in that in that it is a, a truly merchant market, um, which means us as a developer operator can sell electricity to to, to almost any buyer. Um, in most other provinces, by law, you have to you know go through a process and sell electricity to the system operator. Mm-hmm. And what that what the big difference effectively is is contract term. So when you go through a process in a different process or province, sorry, you you know you sell that power on a long term basis, and then all developers, whether they're renewables or otherwise, or even in other asset type businesses where the assets are long term and contracted, you can put debt on those and then make a very cheap power price. Mm-hmm. So the the challenge in Alberta isn't really just power price; it's term, and it's the ability to actually bring these phenomenally cheap. Um, renewable um, power prices that we're seeing everywhere else mm-hmm. to the market without term. So the the spot price is one thing, and that's driven by some pretty complicated market factors. And how do we get here? And that's that's a story for experts to explain. I think in many many hours. But basically, you know, we have um, some legacy coal that's running, and and uh, you know, under previous federal governments, that was mandated to shut off. So there was an expectation that that would you know have a reflection in the, in the in the power price market and those uh, you know those those shutdowns you know will occur and i think the current provincial government is 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 maintaining um that schedule plus uh, changing it uh, for some of the stuff that would have been later under the the previous federal government's plan so th- those factors played into you know when does the price change and and then how do you build but the lack of a long-term market mm-hmm. um, is, is sort of a, as big a challenge as the lower power price. Mm-hmm. The lower power price, um, and, and this is the same for any commodity market, um, low prices eventually cure themselves because people stop you know, building. Yeah. And as assets get older and older and people can't maintain them or build new ones, it eventually changes. Mm-hmm. So you know, there, there was something that was going to happen here over a long time, but it would have been more painful and less predictable for everybody on on the consumer side and on the generation side. So I think, you know, what the current government is trying to do is is bridge that, uh, is, is, is how I would say it. But it takes yep. a tremendous amount of change. I'm not sure if that answered your question, but the no. the, the, the renewables uh, markets, you know, where, where we're seeing outside of Alberta and outside of Canada as well as, you know, wind especially and now solar in other regions is extremely cheap. Mm-hmm. I mean, the technology has evolved um, in a phenomenal way. It's kind of earth shattering how much some things have changed. So the power prices are um, that we can, you know, make renewables for, you know, is, is completely different than it was five or 10 years ago. And we can only do that if we have term. Yeah. 
And that's what the other generators would tell you as well, regardless of fuel type. Yeah. And and you sort of mentioned the, the portfolio of different technologies. Is that is that landscape starting to wait to particular technologies? If you had to bet on a particular form of renewable generation going forward, are you uh, are you betting on one versus another? Sort of what are your thoughts on the the technology on generation side? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting question, and we we see um, now. Would I bet on one? I'm not sure I would because it's actually very regional. Yeah. Um, you know, Alberta is in a, is in a great great place to be part of another energy boom here with a, a phenomenal solar and wind resource. Um, you know, hydro is 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 a great product too, but you need you need the physics. You need to be in the right part of the the earth where there's enough water and enough height for it to fall. And, and Alberta has some of that, but nothing like British Columbia or or Quebec might have. So you know. In, in Alberta, uh, you know, wind and very soon solar will be, um, and same with Saskatchewan, by the way. Alberta and Saskatchewan, you know, are, are a great place to do wind and solar. Um, and I think that'll that'll um, upset a lot of traditional forms of generation from time to come because it's moved, you know, just so much. You know, those prices have dropped so much. And then if you think do, about Do you find that to be a factor, though, in people when you see the solar cost curve dropping like it has? Uh, it's sort of the analogy of trying to catch a falling knife that you your economics you know will only ever get better as that cost curve comes down. So do you see hesitation in the market from people that are unwilling to make the jump, knowing that it's sort of like computers it's going to be out of date in two years time? Not particularly. And I think that's I think you just answered the question in that regard. I mean, you you still buy a smartphone even though you know two years from now there'll be a better battery and a better phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so people still need to act and still need to do things. So that that is a key place um, or key piece. I'm sorry. The the other factor I think is where we've se- seen leaps and bounds in the in the drops in solar. That'll eventually taper off. Mm-hmm. Wind is a much more mature technology in, in terms of how much it's been deployed around the world, and it's it's still improving. But you're you're seeing that those improvements um, getting getting smaller, but they're still still improving, and that's where it I think maybe impacts. Uh, how we how we see these technologies compete against more traditional forms where, you know, you, you have to think about solar power specifically and possibly some of the storage technologies as a consumer electronics product. And why that's important to think about is because we can all get our head around, you know, what it's like to go buy a, a television today versus what it was two years ago. But if you're building something that's that takes way more concrete and steel and a ton more labor, it's harder for those things to get cheaper every year. So you're relying more on the technology itself and efficiencies within that. But the dynamics are completely different for solar and storage mm-hmm. than they are for, for let's say, wind and hydro and other forms of traditional generation. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what I think is important for us, you know, in, in regard to being a portfolio mm-hmm. plays because we don't necessarily know day to day which is going to be the best thing for the best region, and we have to be good at all of it. Okay. We really have to be good at all of it. And you've mentioned a couple times storage, but uh, from my understanding, you guys don't have any active storage assets. Is that correct? Correct. We don't have any operating storage okay. assets yet. And I was at, um, I forget who it was, but was saying that they had a presentation from uh, a Wall Street uh, investment banker who was analyzing the commodity prices in the Alberta electricity market and said that uh, electricity, sort of the spot market in the, the power market for Alberta is one of the most volatile commodities on earth. He had said that the, the differences between $10 a megawatt hour and $999 mm-hmm. a megawatt hour can happen in the same day. And so storage has been discussed at length, and we've done entire episodes about storage in the past. And it's always seemed to be just beyond the horizon of economic viability. 
ability. And so, um, and, and even you guys as a portfolio company don't have current active storage assets. And so uh, I just, as someone who's very much inside that industry, um, where do you see the sort of, or, or what time frame do you see storage becoming a viable opportunity for Alberta, for Canada, for the global market? I think I'll, I'll try to answer this deliberately in two different parts because, you know, in, in what we've seen and what we um, are doing in the market, it, storage will absolutely be there. Now, the, the harder question, you know, you ask me, when do I think it'll be there? Um, that's the much harder uh, question because its uh, rate of change is so hard to predict. Mm-hmm. And and before I try and answer that even more specifically, if you think back to what we just said about solar, you know, um, your, your comment about it's just beyond the horizon. Uh, and that um, is certainly something that um, I and others have experienced. I mean, I've been in electricity markets for well over 15 years or, or, or more than that when I actually sit here and think about it. But, <laughs> but you know, the, when someone would have said to me 10 years ago, you know, you're going to own a bunch of solar projects, I wouldn't have believed them. Yeah. Now, does that necessarily mean that storage is going to do the same thing? Um, not by itself, but I think what we see in the power markets now that the raw cost of generation from renewables is competitive with any other form. Um, you know, storage is the next driver. People will demand it. And I think, again, getting outside of the electricity concepts for a second, any infrastructure, anything that we build, roads and water systems and things, they're all built for the peak. Mm -hmm. They're not built for the average, not built for two in the morning. They're all built for the peak. So any storage, right? Like the the comment you made about people coming on about the volatility in the market and you can go from $10 to 900 um, in Alberta and back, you know, we don't even need that. You just need to manage that spread by hours mm-hmm. with some storage. So the, the market will force storage to be there. Yeah. Um, and I think the the other side of that is the, the technology development. And you, and you see what's being done with um, groups like Tesla and, and others that are, that are, you know, they're building for a new world. And it's, it's happening and it's starting to make sense. Yeah. So again, going back to another question, you know, electric cars were just over the horizon forever and you can you can buy one on the internet right now and have it delivered to your house so um and now i checked a week ago and tesla's market cap is within the same range i think it's greater than ford's uh and slightly less than gm or something like that they're a company that sells phenomenally less cars but has a the, the market has spoken that that's the future and i think that's telling and that's you know that's that's has a lot to do with storage. Yep. I mean, the, one of the core enablers there is the fact that they can make batteries work at that level. So, you know, is it is it a stretch to think that that could happen in in terms of renewable generation? No, it is not. Um, is it three years out? Maybe not. Is it is it five to ten? You know, it, it feels like it's going to be likely. Mm-hmm. But uh, we just, you know, the, the good news is part of the reason that this is such an important question is the raw cost of renewables is so low now that that's now the the uh, differentiator in the past uh, critics of renewables would stand up and say it's too expensive mm-hmm. well that's not true anymore so now they have to stand up and say well it's not exactly when i want it okay well we'll <laughs> fix it we'll fix that too yeah and so we've been talking a little bit about some of the sort of positive and optimistic aspects so prices coming down there being appetite and, and consortiums wanting to purchase these sorts of assets um, but i want to maybe flip the coin over and ask you about some of the challenges that you guys see so the the sort of most telling question i find is is what keeps you up at night right now so as the president and ceo of a large-scale renewable energy company what are the, the the fears and challenges and things that keep you up at night and worrying about building and growing this business i think that the things that keep me up at night are 
are actually what we just talked about. You know, can I be, can I remain competitive in in, in terms of storage and pricing? Um, you know, the the groups that we compete against now, because we are in a global market, Alberta, in 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 the the activity that's going to occur here in the electricity market in 2017. You know, we're going to see competition from all over the world, from from big and small, and some of those groups. Um, can bring you know lower costs of capital. They can bring uh, greater economies of scale, but they can also look forward and make bigger bets because they have a bigger portfolio themselves. And they can say, well, we'll take a we'll take a bet that pricing on solar or pricing on wind is going to do X and Y, and and we'll we'll take the chance that it does get cheaper, and we'll we'll bid today on that basis. Mm-hmm. So you know what keeps me up at night is actually the competition from the renewable space. Um, you know I think we're what we've seen in terms of traditional generation. Um, that is, it is where it is, and we understand it, and it, and it plays a part, like we all play a part in a portfolio of of things. I don't want to see a grid of any one form of energy. Like I think that that's that's important. But the things that I worry about competing against are other renewable developers that that are bringing these things in mm-hmm. um, at a, at, a, at a tremendously low price for for different reasons. Um, you know, our, our shareholder right now is the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, so I have a an obligation to to make that work, mm-hmm. and and we'll do so. And if, if you know, we'll, we'll work very hard to compete here. But I think the things that keep me up at night would have to be competition from you know what is a, a, a massive amount of momentum, and it may be harder to see from from some parts of Alberta. But globally, you know, the rate of change in renewables and the and, and the rate of change in price and technology is it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. The, the rate of growth and um, what's behind it. So that's the part that keeps me up at night is making sure I can compete, making sure I can keep this uh, this model working as well as it has so far. Yeah, and and I'm glad you brought that up, sort of the global view. I was in Paris for COP21, and and it was such a it was such a marquee moment in my opinion in the world where just seeing that many countries, that many leaders, and and the voice of business in that was fascinating to me. That it was one of the first times where I felt like it wasn't a sort of greenwashing aspect. It was a very thought out how do we turn being green into a competitive advantage how do we instill sustainability as part of the corporate culture and dna of fortune 500 companies and and it's so interesting to see right now the the sort of pushback in the united states and in places in alberta against some of the 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 momentum and the the inertia that's already gotten this sort of transformation underway and so uh and i just maybe to connect that back do you see the 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 recent changes politically in the United States, as well as some of the sort of rhetoric changes, even here in Alberta, as being downsides to your business, is that challenges you guys need to overcome, or sort of how do you guys deal with or interact with that on a day-to-day basis? I think part of it is, is our model. You know, we, we've always said we have to be portfolio in technology and region, and that includes maybe maybe different, obviously different provinces, but maybe different uh, countries as well. So, trying to break this into pieces, um, you know, you know the the current uh, sentiment in Alberta. Um, you know, the, the debate about renewables tends to become a political debate, not necessarily a debate about um, about the, the actual prices mm-hmm. or where this could go. And it's also, at the same time, it's a tremendous amount of change is going on here in, in our industry and with groups that have to, you know, manage electricity grid and uh, and all the work that they have to do to make, make these things um, change from a, 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 a place where they were for 40 plus years to where people are trying to take them today. So first of all, Alberta seems to be about, you know, dealing with that degree of change and then the political debate, you know, people wanting to to brand um, 
what type of electricity, you know, belongs to what type of political belief, which, you know, I don't think is necessarily a, a helpful thing for anybody. So, you know, I think first and foremost, that's just dealing with change. So, you know, we we have to be in more, more than one market and we'll do the best we can in every market we're in. And, um, and I don't, uh, you know, never started in this business expecting the government to make our business work yeah. and we'll, and we'll uh, do everything we can. The, the U.S. question, you know, um, a month old uh, Trump administration, um, you know, we've seen lots of different things he's doing. Do I know what that means to my business yet? I don't. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, where it might hurt um, some parts of what we, what we would see in the U.S. for a market, maybe that means there's, there's less wind development down there and that means turbines are cheaper like there's a, a number of different things that could occur yeah. um you know wind wind turbines um yeah, you, you can't yet really buy a wind turbine in canadian dollars so there's always a foreign exchange yeah. question sometimes u.s based or sometimes euro based so there's a number of different factors that could move this in different directions um, but you know the i guess part of the u.s uh, piece there is this the individual states have a lot of uh, power in terms mm-hmm. of their own destiny for for energy issues, and some of the states, you know, have been leading the charge for renewables for some time anyway. So does that change? I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're 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 quite hopeful still that that logic will prevail. And I think the good news is, like I've said earlier, uh, you know, the the price of renewables now is in such a different place that it quickly leaves a political argument when all the facts are on the table. Mm-hmm. And that's that's all we can hope for, and that's all we're trying to prove. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, a significant portion of our audience are, are youth and students that are, are, ma- are about to enter or have just entered into the workforce and into the energy industry. And so um, you're in a unique position where you said you've been working, I think it's closer to 20 years now, that you've yeah. been in the, the electricity and renewable side of things. Any advice for someone who's just coming out of civil engineering at the U of A or, or coming out of a program in, in renewable energy or any type of energy project um, that's interested in, in the type of business or, or work that you do? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, hard to sit here in you know on this campus where I learned how to be an engineer and, and didn't predict where my career was going to go. It's, it's somewhat humbling, but, you know, I, I would say that the the regardless of just renewables, those those pieces that that uh, are required to get any real project built, like there's 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 still no substitute for building the project. We still can't create an app to generate electricity. So you know all projects need good engineering, what be it civil, mechanical, electrical. All those core fundamental building blocks are true. All of them need you know all kinds of baseline environmental work and people in the field, you know, looking for. For for everything, from vegetation to, to to wildlife and 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 all kinds of things in between. So we, you know, I, I would think that that um, if I was trying to give myself advice, it'd be stick to the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to label yourself as a solar person today. You, you need to be a good engineer or a good biologist or good at commerce and understand debt. Um, and you know, none of us know how much this will change in the next 20 years. So that's what I think is still the core, those absolute fundamentals, those those things that you need, um, not because it's a solar project or a wind project, but because you need to be a good engineer or, um, like I say, good at building a financial model so you can, you know, um, determine the, the right return. Yeah. 
Well, I can't think of a better closing to the the interview than that. So I'll just wrap it up and say a huge thank you for joining us on the show today. Just appreciate having the opportunity to sort of pick your brain about your past experience and, and where you see the industry going. And, and we hope to have you back maybe in the future to hear about future projects and development from Blue Earth. I'd be, I'd be happy to, to come up and be on campus again. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the next interview from Rat in, in, in sub over a beer. Hopefully they let me back in. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Thanks so much, Ken. <laughs> Bye. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm really excited to welcome Ryan Dick, who's the president of the University of Alberta Student Energy Chapter on campus. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, thanks, Sean. So first off, I have to uh, I have to laugh a little bit. So uh, I'm working with the new renewable energy startup called Terrapin Geothermics, and we also have one of our staff is named Ryan Dick, who's been very involved in student energy. And so uh, he thinks that there's been a doppelganger created of him, of a new, young, enthusiastic energy person. So you and Ryan will have to meet one day and have <laughs> Ryan off. <laughs> oh, yeah. That'd be awesome. That'd be yeah. awesome. So, uh, um, sorry. So I wanted to ask you uh, just to come on the show today to share a little bit with us just about the the U of A student energy chapter, what student energy chapters are, and sort of why you were interested in those. But before we dive into that, maybe just give us a bit of background. What are you studying? What got you interested in energy in general? And, and sort of what brought you to this point today? Perfect. Yeah. Um, currently, I'm studying civil engineering at the University of Alberta. Um, the reason I got started with something like this is I just found so much opportunity. Um, student energy is a way for students to get involved in the energy ecosystem that's currently going on. And I think it's, it, it's made a huge difference in my life. Mm-hmm. So there's chapters all over Alberta. Uh, there's one in UFC, um, Mount Royal University. Um, we're start, we started one up in University of Alberta. They're moving to Nate and Sate. And I think not only that there's this network of people, but additionally that there's an international group that will help you in any way that you need. So in ways that we needed help was, an example, like we needed past templates to really voice out to students, and they have this information already. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not starting from the bottom and working your way up. It's already starting from the top, and it's a huge help. Cool. And, and, and what got you interested in energy in general? So as a civil engineer, there's lots of non-energy related projects that you could have gotten involved in. And so what is it about energy that makes you sort of rally to this as a potential industry for you to work in? Mm. I think it's really interesting because it's definitely the way of the future. Uh, I, I Just working with sustainable buildings, we had a speaker come in just recently and just pointing the building in the right direction can make your building like a net zero building. And I think just that is just incredible in itself. Um, I think there's definitely been a shift in the way people are thinking these days. And I definitely want to be a part of this shift. I originally got started when I started doing some consulting competitions at the U of A. And the topic continued to be sustainability throughout University of Alberta and around the province. And it's really got me thinking, how can I make a difference in Alberta and what change can I do? And I think student energy is a way for me to help reach out to other students and change the way Canada is just moving and the direction it's going. It's interesting to me. I, I'm a UBA alum myself and uh, I was in university from 2004 to 2009 and 
it was interesting that this wasn't a topic of conversation when I was in university. There uh, was a couple small little initiatives or a couple small little events there, but things like uh, Sustainability Week on campus wasn't really a thing when I started. Uh, there wasn't a conversation. This this whole world is sort of really fundamentally changed in the past 10 years. And, 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 I, and I would ask you the question, is this something that is filtered through to, to all academic disciplines? Because you saw some faculties maybe starting to have these conversations five or 10 years ago, but you would have seen your stalwarts in engineering be traditionally focused on the traditional uh, energy industry. So is that something that you've seen a difference? Do fellow civil engineers talk about renewable energy or sort of how is that conversation happening at the, the sort of student level at the U of A? I think it's definitely changing because in the beginning of my engineering career, nobody really talked about it. It was all oil and gas. And I think there's that definite shift right now. And to jump on board with something like this and really start an initiative that makes a difference in the community, I think will have long lasting effects. Yeah. And and so for people that are that are either interested in starting their own student energy chapter at a at another campus or getting involved in the U of A chapter, what are some of the activities or projects that you guys are are already working on or planning on working on? Perfect. So two things that we're doing right now is we're planning a conference in Calgary. It's the Alberta Student Energy Summit. Okay. And this this brings students from all over the province to a place where they can learn about energy from the ground up. And I think that really helps students. Uh, the other thing that we're doing on campus right now is we're doing a wind feasibility project. Cool. So this wind feasibility project, they're putting wind sensors around campus to see if uh, a wind turbine on campus would be feasible. I think this is a really cool thing. And... Not only that, um, this is this project has kind of blown out of proportion, and it's all over the country now. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I love the idea of the the wind project because it sort of forces students to understand all aspects of energy. That there's stakeholder relations yeah. and financial and technical and that sort of thing. So, what uh, what's the plan for you guys as far as rolling out that project? What is the, What do the timelines look like for studying that op- opportunity? So right now, what's happening is the project has is in works between Student Energy and um, the Engineering Department of the U of A. So what we're doing is we're offering our services to uh, use these uh, wind monitors and put them all over campus while the engineering department is studying the results. So we are playing an active role in this wind feasibility project, and it's really cool to see just the future develop. Yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, for students that want to attend the Alberta Summit, uh, when's that taking place and how can people find out more information? Perfect. So the Alberta Student Energy Summit is happening March 4th and 5th. That's a Saturday and Sunday. It'll be at in Calgary at the TELUS Spark Center. Uh, we will be pro- providing transportation, accommodation, and transportation back, which is an awesome deal for 20 bucks. Um, if <laughs> that, any, is, that is a very good deal. Yeah. <laughs> If anyone wants to get involved, uh, the best thing to do would be visit our website at studentenergy.com. Okay. Uh, there'll be more information there. Uh, additionally, there's a Facebook page, uh, the Alberta Student Energy Summit, uh, for more information. Perfect. And and so the the student energy chapter at the U of A is just sort of getting up and getting off the ground and, and working on some of the projects you described. What is sort of, as somebody who's helping really build this organization from the ground up at the U of A. What are some of your hopes over the next sort of three to five years as, as far as what role the chapter can play at the university? Mm. I I look forward to more growth, Yeah. first of all. Um, one goal that I really want to see coming up 
possibly even next year, is an Edmonton Student Energy Summit. So previously this year, we had the Sustainability Summit, which had some pretty great speakers, but I think we can do even better than that. We can bring speakers from all over Canada to really represent what's happening in energy. I think the Sustainability Summit did an awesome job bringing local speakers from all over, but what if we had people from like nuclear energy and like uh, bioenergy and all that kind of stuff? I think that would really help influence students' opinion on what's going on. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, I love that approach, and I even use the nuclear example as a bit of sort of messaging on how we tend to have really regionalized conversations about energy. We talk about the oil sands nonstop in Alberta, mm -hmm. and pretty much outside of Alberta, and definitely outside of Canada, it's almost never discussed. Mm -hmm. You, when I, I spend about a month traveling around Europe and having conversations with various people about energy um, and things like bioenergy and nuclear power and hydropower and tidal and all these. There's all these different topics and conversations in energy that we sometimes miss out on when all we focus on is what's happening sort of in our own backyard. Um, and it's interesting in the previous interview that we had with Grant Arnold from Blue Earth, he sort of talks a lot about that portfolio aspect about how there's so many different types of energy uh, and, and energy generation opportunities. And there's so many large scale global forces that affect our energy system. So uh, I just wanted to comment that I sort of love the approach of trying to incorporate new ideas in what you're doing, not just what we're doing on the ground in Edmonton today. Mm, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And so, for any uh, for any students that are interested in getting involved uh, in the the University of Alberta chapter, how can they best find you? They can best find me through messaging this Alberta Student Energy page on Facebook. Okay. So uh, we're the University of Alberta Student Energy chapter. Okay, well, I encourage any of our listeners that are attending the U of A or attending uh, universities at one of the other campuses that have a student energy chapter to reach out. Uh, and I hope to see everybody at the uh, Alberta Student Energy Summit in uh, early March. Thanks so much, Sean. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. And uh, maybe we'll have you back on once you've completed that wind feasibility study to sort of see the results of that and, and how that project might be able to be implemented at, on campus. Perfect. Thanks. Okay, take care. Bye. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm going to introduce everybody to a TED Talk that I recently listened to by Monica Araya from Costa Rica. Monica does a fantastic job of talking about how Costa Rica as a developing nation has made renewable energy a key piece of their development strategy, but also addresses some of the real challenges that Costa Rica is currently facing in transitioning uh, their transportation sector away from fossil fuel use as they almost fully transition their electricity sector, uh, but still have significant carbon emissions from that transportation sector. I think this is important for people from fossil fuel jurisdictions to also understand how many jurisdictions around the world uh, are currently looking for any way possible to transition away from fossil fuels and the ways in which those jurisdictions are going about this. So here is Monica Araya in her TED Talk. How do we build a society without fossil fuels? This is a very complex challenge, and I believe developing countries could take the lead in this transition. And I'm aware this is a contentious statement. 
But the reality is that so much is at stake in our countries if we let fossil fuels stay at the center of our development. We can do it differently. And it's time, it really is time, to debunk the myth that a country has to choose between development on the one hand and environmental protection, renewables, quality of life on the other. I come from Costa Rica, a developing country. We are nearly five million people, and we live right in the middle of the Americas, so it's very easy to remember where we live. Nearly 100 percent of our electricity comes from renewable sources, five of them. Five. <laughs> Hydropower, geothermal, wind, solar, biomass. Did you know that last year, for 299 days, we did not use any fossil fuels in order to generate all our electricity? It's a fantastic achievement. And yet, it hides a paradox. Which is that nearly 70 percent of all our energy consumption is oil. Why? Because of our transportation system, which is totally dependent on fossil fuels, like it is in most countries. So, if we think of the energy transition as a marathon, the question is: How do we get to the finishing line? How do we decarbonize the rest of the economy? And it's fair to say that if we don't succeed, it's difficult to see who will. So that is why I want to talk to you about Costa Rica, because I believe we are a great candidate in pioneering a vision for development without fossil fuels. If you know one thing about our country, is that we don't have an army. So I'm going to take you back to 1948. That year. The country was coming out of civil war. Thousands of Costa Ricans had died, and families were bitterly split. And yet, a surprising idea won the hearts and minds: we would reboot the country, and that second republic would have no army. So we abolished it. And the president at the time, Jose Chigueres, found a powerful way. By smashing the walls of an army base. The following year, 1949, we made that decision permanent in the new constitution, and that is why I can tell you that story nearly 70 years later. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful they made that decision before I was born, because it allowed me and millions of others to live in a very stable country. And you might be thinking that it was good luck, but it wasn't. There was a pattern of deliberate choices. In the 40s, Costa Ricans were given free education and free healthcare. We call that social guarantees. By abolishing the army, we were able to turn military spending into social spending, and that was a driver of stability. In the 50s. 
In the 50s, we started investing in hydropower, and that kept us away from the trap of using fossil fuels for electricity generation, which is what the world is struggling with today. In the 70s, we invested in national parks, and that kept us away from the deeply flawed logic of growth, growth, growth at any cost that you see others embracing, especially in the developing world. In the 90s, we pioneered payments for ecosystem services, and that helped us reverse deforestation and boosted ecotourism, which today is a key engine of growth. So. Investing in environmental protection did not hurt our economy; quite the opposite. And it doesn't mean we're perfect, and it doesn't mean we don't have contradictions. That's not the point. The point is that by making our own choices, we were able to develop resilience in dealing with development problems. Also, if you take a country like ours, the GDP per capita is around eleven thousand dollars. Depending on how you measure it, but according to the Social Progress Index, we are an absolute outlier when it comes to turning GDP into social progress. Abolishing the army, investing in nature and people did something very powerful too. It shaped a narrative, the narrative of a small country with big ideas, and it was very empowering to grow up with that narrative. So the question is. What is the next big idea for this generation? And I believe what comes next is for this generation to let go of fossil fuels for good, just as we did with the army. Fossil fuels create climate change. We know that, and we know how vulnerable we are to the impacts of climate change. So, as a developing country, it is in our best interest. To build development without fossil fuels that harm people in the first place, because why would we continue importing oil for transportation if we can use electricity instead? Remember, this is the country where electricity comes from: water in our rivers, heat. From volcanoes, wind turbines, solar panels, bio waste. Abolishing fossil fuels means disrupting our transportation system, so that we can power our cars, buses, and trains with electricity instead of dirty energy. And transportation, let me tell you, has become an existential issue for us Costa Ricans, because the model we have is not working for us. Is hurting people, is hurting companies, and is hurting our health, because when policies and infrastructure fails, this is what happens on a daily basis. Two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. I don't understand why we have to accept this as normal. It's offensive to have to waste our time like this every single day. And this highway is actually quite good compared to what you see in other countries, where traffic is exploding. You know, Costa Ricans call this presa. <laughs> presa means imprisoned. And people are turning violent in a country that is otherwise happy and pura vida. 
It's happening. So a lot is at stake. The good news is that when we talk about clean transportation and different mobility, we're not talking about some distant utopia out there. We're talking about electric mobility that is happening today. By 2022, electric cars and conventional cars are expected to cost the same, and cities are already trying electric buses. And these really cool creatures are saving money, and they reduce pollution. So, if we want to get rid of oil-based transportation, we can, because we have options now that we didn't have before. It's really exciting. But of course, some get very uncomfortable with this idea, and they will come, and they will tell you that the world is stuck with oil. And so is Costa Rica. So get real. That's what they tell you. And you know what the answer to that argument is? That in 1948 we didn't say the world is stuck with armies, so let's keep our army too. No, <laughs> we made a very brave choice, and that choice made the whole difference. So it's time for this generation to be brave again and abolish fossil fuels for good. And I'll give you three reasons why we have to do this. First. Our model of transportation and urbanization is broken, so this is the best moment to redefine our urban and mobility future. We don't want cities that are built for cars. We want cities for people, where we can walk, and we can use bikes, and we want public transportation, lots of it, public transportation that is clean and dignifying. Because if we continue adding fleets of conventional cars, Our cities will become unbearable. Second, we have to change, but incremental change is not going to be sufficient. We need transformational change, and there are some incremental projects in my country, and I am the first one to celebrate them. But let's not kid ourselves. We're not talking about ending up with really beautiful electric cars here and a few electric buses there. While we keep investing in the same kind of infrastructure—more cars, more roads, more oil—we're talking about breaking free from oil, and you cannot get there through incrementalism. Third, and you know this one: the world is hungry for inspiration. It craves stories of success. In dealing with complex issues, especially in developing countries, so I believe Costa Rica can be an inspiration to others, as we did last year, when we disclosed that for so many days we were not using any fossil fuels in order to generate all our electricity. The news went viral around the world. Also, and this makes me extremely proud. A Costa Rican woman, Cristiana Figueres, played a decisive role in the negotiations of the Paris Climate Agreement. So we have to protect that legacy and be an example. So what comes next? The people. How do we get people to own this? How do we get people to believe that it's possible? 
to build a society without fossil fuels. A lot of work from the ground up is needed. That is why in 2014 we created Costa Rica Limpia. Limpia means clean, because we want to empower and we want to inspire citizens. If citizens don't get engaged, clean transportation decisions will be bogged down by endless, and I mean endless, technical discussions and by avalanches of lobbying by very established interests. Wanting to be a green country, powered by renewables, is already part of our story. We should not let anybody take that away from us. Last year, we brought people from our seven provinces to talk about climate change in terms that matter to them, and we also brought this year another group of Costa Ricans to talk about renewable energy. And you know what? These people disagree on almost everything, except on renewable energy and clean transportation and clean air. It brings people together, and their key to real participation is to help people not to feel small. People feel powerless, and they are tired of not being heard. So what we do is concrete things, and we translate technical issues into citizen language. To show that citizens have a role to play and can play it together. For the first time, we're tracking the promises that were made on clean transportation, and politicians know that they have to deliver it. But the tipping point will come when we form coalitions, citizens, companies, champions of public transportation, that will make electric mobility the new normal, especially in a developing country. By the time the next election comes. I believe every candidate will have to disclose where they stand on the abolition of fossil fuels, because this question has to enter our mainstream politics. And I'm telling you, this is not a question of climate policy or environmental agenda. It's about the country that we want, and the cities that we have, and the cities that we want, and who makes that choice. Because at the end of the day, what we have to show. Is that development with renewable energy is good for the people, for Costa Ricans that are alive today, and especially for those who haven't been born. This is our national museum today. It's bright and peaceful, and when you stand up in front of it, it's really hard to believe these were military barracks at the end of the 40s. We started a new life without an army in this place, and here is where our abolition of fossil fuels will be announced one day, and we will make history again. Thank you. That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. You can find all previous episodes of Energy Voices at SoundCloud.com/energyvoices, or by searching for Energy Voices in iTunes or your favorite podcast service.